0: Let's turn now to our sermon text in the Old Testament, which is Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have just read one of the very briefest verses in all of Scripture, one which all of us know by heart. But, oh Lord, if only we knew it in its entirety and understood all the depths of its implications, if we understood your intent in these things, all that you imply throughout Scripture and the perfection of your law, and beyond that, if we were to obey it. my Lord, how we pray that you would grant me much help as I seek to explicate these few brief words and that you would grant us wisdom from on high. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come to the Sixth Commandment, in our study of God's law, You Shall Not Murder. Now, we mentioned the fifth commandment as a bridge between the two tables of the law. The first table having to do with our relationship with God. The second having to do with our relationship with man. And uh, we, we mentioned that the, the fifth in some way has to do with God and some way has to do with man. But now we come to this first of the second table and, it's, uh, and the fullness of it and really to the heart of the second table. Just as the first commandment really is the heart of the, the, the first table, all right, in that we, you shall have no other gods before me, that has to do with the existence of God. There is only one God, and if we believe in the existence of that one God, there are no other gods. It's, that's impossible. You have one God only. And to imagine other gods is in one way or another to deny the existence of that one true God. Well, the worst thing that you can do to man, likewise, is to not deny his, his right to exist. And we, as we are finite and we are able to be killed, the way that happens among us is seeking to take people's lives away. That is the denying of the right to exist. Now, I would say that on the whole, this commandment here is the one commandment that people think they have actually obeyed. Uh, Just speaking to people out in the world as a whole, and even people in God's church... They recognize that they have not honored and worshiped God as they should have. If, they, if you tell them about that commandment, they'll readily admit they probably haven't done that. That they're guilty with regard to sexual purity, minor acts of theft, various forms of untruthfulness, covetousness. They will admit under duress that in various ways they have probably not. But this is, their, this is their, what they believe to be their safe haven because at least they haven't murdered anybody. They've at least managed to keep the Sixth Commandment. Well, I suppose it's one of my objectives in this sermon to change that. If there's anyone who's come into this service tonight thinking that they have obeyed the Sixth Commandment, my objective is to change your mind and get you to see in the fullness of God's commandment that you haven't to help you to see that the scope of this commandment is far broader than the actual act of taking someone's life away, that ultimate and final act of denying their right to exist. But it extends all the way back to the heart of hatred that stands behind the knife or the gun, or even further, to the lack of love for other people. For this is the inverse, you see, of the sixth commandment. Do not hate your neighbor. Right, and the sum of the whole second table of the law is that you shall love your neighbor, with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And inasmuch as that we have failed to love people with a perfect love, we have not kept the sixth commandment. That's the totality, the completeness, and perfection of this commandment. You know the psalmist says in Psalm one nineteen. I assume we'll get to sing it in the not too distant future. 96 to 97, I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And those who imagine that God's commandments are narrow are absolutely missing the mark. Those who understand God's word just understand the immense breadth of each and every one of these commandments. Now, that's one objective. Now, objective one is to get you to understand you haven't kept this law, no one has. This commandment, you've broken it, just like you've broken the others. And I want not to lose sight of the three uses of God's law. I know that we spoke about this at the beginning, but now is the time when we get into the into the meat of the second table, I, I want to remind you that there are three uses to God's law. The first is civil, meaning that as, as the light of the word goes out around the world, around us, that uh, that, God's, uh, that, that people, even if they're not Christians, are going to be more law-abiding citizens. That's why we do it. We teach people uh, that, you know, uh, some people wonder, if, you, if you're not actually doing evangelism, is there any use whatsoever to include the Bible, to include biblical teaching, for instance, in the schools or something like that? And the answer is yes, because it at least deals with the first use of the law in, in civil righteousness, Military chaplaincy has a lot to do with that. The second one is even more important than that, and that's, of course, to bring us to Christ. How are we going to ever come to Christ if we see no need of him? The only way is when we become convicted of our sin and recognize our great need of him by seeing what sinners we are. And friends, there is no harm in seeing what, what sin you're guilty of. The more you see the purity of God's law, the more you remember and understand just how much you have disobeyed it. The more you will either be thankful that you are already in Christ or the more that you will earnestly desire to find Christ. That's the second use of the law. And thirdly then, as a rule for the believer that we might conform our life to Christ. How do we conform? How do we become like Christ? Well, he's given us this law and the more we know about it and the more that we conform ourselves to it, we are conforming ourselves to the author of the law, who is Christ Himself. Well, the Sixth Commandment, that's our title, again, very easy with these three points. You shall not murder, you shall not hate, you shall love. You shall not murder, you shall not hate, you shall love. So, first of all, you shall not murder. It's a very simple, again, these four words in English, you shall not murder, it's less in Hebrew, very simple and seemingly easy to master. But again, keep in mind, this has its foundation in God as the lawmaker. Genesis 9.6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So when we think about the second table and we're talking now about man instead of God and we're saying God has a right to exist and as God there is no other God and we must worship Him and all the implications of recognizing the existence of God in the first table and loving Him. And when we move into the second table and speak about man, let us not forget that they are connected because man has the image of God. When we respect our, fellow, our neighbors' right to exist. And when we love them, we are rec- recognizing and acting in accordance with the fact that, that every man and woman in this world has been made in the image of the living God. Now, the Nazis, of course, dismissed this, and they imagined that only those in their own image were really human beings, and everyone else was some kind of subhuman that they could kill. And one of the many reasons that they hated the Jews, not only because they didn't conform to their image, was that they had access to a transcendent law, the Ten Commandments, which would not subject to the so-called will of the people. And, of course, they couldn't stand it, just like they couldn't stand Christians as well, who held to that transcendent law of God that says, you shall not murder. Now, what does it mean when it says you shall not murder? Of course, in the most basic sense... It has to do with intentional killing. There is a big distinction made with accidental killing because there's a whole big provision in in the Old Testament law. Numbers 35, for, for those who have killed someone by accident, the manslayers. Numbers 35, verse 15, The sixth city shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and the sojourner among them, and anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there right so there's provision it's understood that this is a different category this accidental killing and the ceremonial law makes provision for it but using a deadly weapon on someone implies a murderous intent and so for instance in the law of god if you strike someone with an iron implement and that he dies he's a murderer you didn't it doesn't matter if your intent was Not if you are thinking, I just want to do him harm. I don't want to actually kill him. That's not salient. That's that's not that doesn't help you, because if your intent is to do someone harm, as demonstrated by the the weapon that you take up in your hand, and if that person then happens to die, then you are guilty of murder. And even if there is no deadly weapon. If there is premeditation, meaning you thought about this beforehand, and this is your plan, or some pre existing motive to do someone harm, that also is motive, so or is also murder. So Numbers thirty five twenty. If he pushes him out of hatred, while lying in wait, hurls something at him so that he dies, or an enmity strikes him with his hand so that he dies, the one who struck him shall surely be put to death, he is a murderer. Right? So it is not the kind of uh, TV understanding of things that makes one a, a, a murderer, um, but rather simply that you have hatred in your heart, and whether in a, using some deadly instrument or just even your hands, that person dies as a result. This is murder. Now, murder also involves conspiracy. Of course, that is something we might be familiar with. For instance, Ahab giving his consent to Jezebel. You remember that situation? Jezebel comes up with this brilliant plan. That's the way, way we do things where I'm from. Uh, she says, um, if, you've got, if you want this Nabob's vineyard, I have a plan for that. And she hatches a plot to have Nabob uh, murdered in this conspiracy. Now, Nabob, of course, didn't think about this, didn't come up with it, didn't kill him himself, didn't even give the orders that killed. He just simply gave his consent to this conspiracy hatched by someone else. And what does it say in 1 Kings 21, 19? Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? And You shall speak to him saying, thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So that's the thing. It's across the the whole spectrum, any kind of connection with somebody's loss of life that had to do with envy, had to do with hatred, had to do with the desire that the person uh, no longer be around, that's murder. Well, being an accessory to murder even counts as well. In Matthew 23:34, it says, "Therefore, indeed I send you prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar." And of course, they didn't do that themselves; they were merely an accessory uh, in this. Now, hopefully hopefully none of us are involved in these kinds of things. I've described to you what the commandment in its purest and fullest and, and, and highest degree would be having anything to do with someone dying as a result of you wanting him or simply not stopping him from being put to death. Let's move then quickly on to the second thing, which is a more full and and larger sense of this commandment, which is, you shall not hate your neighbor. And could, is there a door to open back there? Thank you. Not many of us, as I say, have actually committed murder or conspiracy to commit murder, but perhaps we have hated someone. And here's the point at which the commandment reaches us, I think, where we are. Okay? It's hatred. The basic issue is the heart. Mark 7.21, from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, and murders. That's what's in the heart. And from God's perspective, what's the big difference between, let's imagine that somebody has actually decided in their heart to murder someone, and they were planning on going through it, and somehow the, the opportunity was gone. They made arrangement with some sort of hitman and then the, the hitman was, ended up uh, being otherwise detained or maybe he was arrested. And so the murder didn't actually happen. But from God's perspective, everything that they could have done that was in their hand was absolutely the same. God's not going to exonerate somebody just because by, by circumstances, by accident, the thing didn't actually go according to plan. Now, what about then take that in the larger sense of that heart of hatred, if we understand then that that's the root issue and that's what makes us guilty of this commandment, then we understand ways in which we might also be, uh, have, have committed this, uh, this act ourselves. Now, First John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. All right, so I'm not just making this up. This is from the word of God. This isn't just the, the Westminster uh, divines and their amazing penchant for, for pulling things out of scripture and pulling out all the good and necessary consequences of things. And maybe they're just reaching a little bit when we say that hatred actually is a violation of this law. The word of God says it utterly explicitly in First John 3.15. And so again, the question is, have you violated this sixth commandment? Another way of asking it is if you, if you hated somebody in your life. If so, then you're guilty before God. That hatred then in your heart expressing its way in unjust anger and angry words. That's, of course, what we saw in Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause... Shall be in danger of the judgment. That's the issue, and it goes even to speech. And whoever says to his brother, "Raka," shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, "You fool," shall be in danger of hellfire. That means on the last day, there are going to be people whom God judges, and the judgment by which He He says He's sending them to hell is going to be on the basis of the words that they have spoken with regard to their brothers. Unjust words that have their, their root in anger. Friends, that's very serious, isn't it? You know, not only does it have to do with angry words, it even has to do with some forms of lying, actually. We're going to speak of lying at an, on another occasion, of course. But you know that John 8.44 identifies Satan as a murderer. And by what basis is he a murderer, for instance? Did he actually come to Adam and Eve with some sort of pitchfork or some other implement to, to kill them. No, he didn't. He says, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand into truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and a father of it. His weapon in order to put to death our first father, was a lie. And so not only words of anger but even words that are not truthful with the intent to deceive with the intent to do harm to someone they likewise you're guilty of murder if you do these things. Well, you shall not hate and I hope by this point we understand that we are pretty much all caught in that net. But let's take it even the next step further into the positive not just the the negative side of not murdering and not hating. But you shall, thirdly, love your neighbor. Now, this really is the clear implication of what's said in negative terms. Notice the opposition of these ideas in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Okay, that's what you shouldn't do. Don't Don't bear a grudge. I wonder if there were speech bubbles on the top of everyone's head tonight. And I could see... And he grudges. I wonder how many things would pop up above uh, our heads. I wonder how full or how empty of uh, innocent we would see, and you would see for me as well. You shall not bear grudges, but rather you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. You know that's that's a quote in the Old Testament that has to do with loving your neighbor. We, uh, we know it in his New Testament quotation, New Testament reference, mainly as, as only dealing with you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But let's not forget the context. The context is don't take vengeance and don't bear a grudge against the children of your people, but rather love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, reminding us that the command to love is not some sort of airy-fairy ideal, but rather rooted in the identity of the living God himself. I am the Lord. And it is on that basis that we should love our neighbor. Interesting, of course, you know, in Matthew 19, uh, 16 to 19, this is, um, you know, when the rich young ruler comes to the Lord Jesus, and the rich young ruler wants uh, you know, he, he basically wants Jesus to say, you've got it, you've got eternal life. I declare to you that you are 100% ready to go. He wants some kind of declaration of justification. And he doesn't really get it, does he? He says, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, that's wrong already. He says, what good thing shall I do? So he says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You mean? Are you saying that I'm the son of God? If so, that's good, but I don't think you're saying that. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, all these things I have kept from my youth. He really believes that he has kept these things perfectly perfectly. He's standing before the Son of God. Who will one day be his judge, you know? And he's saying in his naivety that he's actually kept all those things. Do you know what we say about this, this rich young ruler among his other problems? Is that no one really taught him the law. Here's the irony. Here's a teacher of Israel. Here's one who is a Pharisee. Here's someone who imagined that he was steeped in the law of God. But he didn't know the law. And one of the things that we certainly seek to do is not only to preach the gospel in its purity, but to teach the whole counsel of God and the law of God and all of its specifics so that none of you would ever be tempted to say all of these things I've kept from my youth. Because, friends, that's what was keeping him from the kingdom of God. His ignorance of the depth and the purity and the truth of God's law was keeping him from salvation because he did not come under conviction and the the, the cry continually comes up in the evangelical church you know do we have to hear about sin do we have to hear about hell do we have to hear about the law friends I don't enjoy in some sense I don't delight in bringing you under conviction I delight in God's law and I love his word every part of it so I hope to you but as bringing the heavy hand of the law, that's not the thing that I most look forward to. But it is absolutely part and parcel of this work. It is necessary. Had this rich young ruler only but come as the tax collector. You remember this great distinction that the Lord makes between the, the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like these other people. And he goes on to list all of his achievements, his wonderful CV of doing good. And the tax collector comes fully convinced that he has broken God's law. And he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. If only we were all in that place. As much as lies in us as elders, we do not want any child growing up in this congregation that could ever say what that rich young ruler said, all these I've kept from my youth. Rather, they would know the purity of God's law and understand that inasmuch as they have once hated anyone momentarily, they are, in God's view, a murderer. Let me also say, as we say, that we shall love the Lord, our, uh, we shall, sorry, we shall love our neighbor as ourself because God is the Lord and it is on that basis And the reason why we want to emphasize the purity of his law, including not just the refraining from hatred, but also of the positive command is, again, that it points out just how frequently we're guilty of this. Because maybe some are thinking to yourself, all right, now I have hated in the past, but at this moment I'm not actually hating anyone. And I say, praise God. Good. That is the way it should be. And certainly before this morning, because if we have anything against our brother, we should have dealt with it before we came to the Lord's table this morning. So that's good. If there's no hatred in your heart whatsoever, the question is, how strong is your love? Because that's the other side of this commandment. The positive side is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And is that true of us? Can we say in truthfulness before God that our love is so strong that we couldn't love people any more than we do? And we love them every bit as much as we love ourselves. The care and the concern that we have in our heart towards one another is at least as great as the care and concern we have for ourselves. Well, let me say then that not doing so is a violation of this commandment. Not caring, by the way, is not an option. We can say sometimes, well, all right, you know, um, I, I think... I don't, I don't hate people, and isn't that good enough? Well, the other side of it is we have to care, you see. And if we are those who really don't care what happens one to another, uh, if that's not something that appears on our radar scope, we have to understand we're not keeping God's law. He wants us to care and to care deeply one for another. You shall love your neighbor indeed as yourself. And all you have to do to think is, how do I love myself? Well, let's just think about it. How do you love? you pray for yourself? Absolutely, you should pray for your neighbor. Do you make plans for yourself as to how it, it, these things are going to? You should make plans for your neighbor. Are you careful to avoid things that are going to be destructive? Yes. And you should help your brother. That's, by the way, why it's a loving thing to correct people. If you see things that are going to be destructive in their lives and causing problems, then it's loving, particularly as parents, to deal with that, just as you'd want those things dealt with yourself. Do you, for instance, uh, seek to acquire good things for yourself? Well, likewise. So we want to give good things one to another. And number one on that list is certainly the gospel. But it also includes various forms of material provision. And all these things you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now by this point, having gone through now these three points, which are pretty simple in terms, you shall not murder, you shall not hate, and instead you shall love, now we consider these duties required, and by this point I think that your mind should be going, and when I when I say these things from the larger catechism, they should make sense. Alright? So the duties required, you know how it goes in the larger catechism. First we talk about the duties, and then we, we talk about the sins. The duties required all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of ourselves and others. Again, the, the example that is given in the catechism is First 1 Kings 18.4. So it was while Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and fed them with bread and water. Now let me ask you the question. What do you think about Obadiah? What do you classify that in? I can tell you, I think I probably would have classified it under that he deserves a medal. Here's some, he's gone way above and beyond what he's required to do. He didn't have anything to do with murdering the prophets. And simply refraining from murdering the prophets, he has now fulfilled the sixth commandment. Actually, in the totality and the fullness of God's law, he was merely fulfilling it. We couldn't possibly say, no, he's exceeded the demands of God's law because God's law is perfect. And Christ, in all that he did, was merely to fulfill the law of God. You have to understand that. He filled it totally and completely. No one else has even come close to doing it. But he did not go beyond that, except in, of course, laying down his life for others. But in his fulfillment of the moral law and all those things, he did, you see, what was required. And so Obadiah did what was required in the law of God. By preserving life, innocent life, by resisting all thoughts and purposes um, having to do with these things. So, for instance, Genesis thirty-seven, Reuben is the example. You remember that they've come up with this horrible plan to uh, to get rid of Joseph, whom they envied and hated. Reuben heard it; he delivered him out of him out of their hands and said, "Let us not kill him." And Reuben said to them, "Shed no innocent blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness." And do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. That was his plan. He had devised a plan to preserve life, to dissuade them from immediately killing him in order that he might go rescue him. We need to do that. Resisting in the, the words that we have and also in the, making, the plans that we make to preserve life. Then by just defense thereof against violence. And friends, again, let me make it very clear When we're dealing with ourselves personally and individually on that level, and when we're dealing with with someone simply uh, mistreating us in some way or another, then we don't go to any great lengths um, to defend ourselves in that way. But when we're talking about life, we certainly have a right to defend ourselves. And when we're talking about particularly the, the life of someone around us, it is an absolute duty that we preserve their life. We defend their lives. Okay? We have to be very clear about that. Again, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what the duties of this commandment require. But if we love people, we will certainly do what it takes to defend their lives. A patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit. It's funny, you know those divines, those old fogies, they understood that when you are anxious... And when you are fretful and overwrought about things, eventually it will be to the detriment of your life. They knew about stress, you see. You go to your doctor today, you go to your GP, you have high blood pressure, what's he going to say? Your your life is, is going to be shortened because of the way you're living. Stop stressing out about things, he might say. And I say, the word of God will say, that we should have a patient bearing of the hand of God and we should have a quietness of mind and cheerfulness of spirit that indeed will preserve our life and the life of those around us if we learn to dwell in these things. It also says a sober use of meat, drink, physic, sleep, uh, labor, and recreation. How about that? These guys sound pretty, pretty new age. No, they don't. No, they don't. Holistic care that's part of the law of god because he's made us not just with one component but all as a as a complete and total person that needs to be cared for and he wants us to preserve our lives and so therefore we should have a sober use of meat and drink and in the physic means meaning of course of medicine and sleep you understand all these things right we don't be lazy on the one hand but we don't deprive ourselves Of sleep, On the other hand, and the right use of labor, again, that's part of preservation of life. Those who don't do anything are not going to live at the fullest life either. And recreation. Those killjoy Puritans. And here they have said in their larger catechism, having to do with the very commandment, thou shalt not murder, they say, you better have right use of recreation. And if you don't, then you're not living in accordance with what God has given to you. Well, again let me say here on going back to the food and drink so that's neither gluttony which will shortly, certainly shorten your life nor false asceticism of uh, being on t- too crazy of a diet seeking to uh, to conform to some uh, weird standard of, of, of appearance that's going to shorten your life as well. Medicine, neither too much nor too little. Go to a d- the doctor when it's a problem uh, but don't go there all the time seeking all kinds of Medications that you probably don't need uh, because there's an incredible proliferation of all kinds of lifestyle enhancement drugs and all the rest in our day we shouldn't uh, involve because there's always side effects and eventually these things will cause problems as well. And then by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, mild and courteous speeches and behavior because this is all about the preservation of our own life and of the life of others. And so it is right to be courteous. It is a right to be compassion, to show compassion one to another in the way that we interact with each other. <coughs> it's interesting to me um, why it is how, how courteous that certain crowds, certain groups of people can be. And I guess for some who haven't been around, people who carry loaded weapons uh, you probably wouldn't guess how courteous that we can be one to another. But it, it's absolutely true. If you're, you're walking around and living daily in, in the possibility of deadly force, you will be courteous. Um, and that's the way, of course, it used to be when everyone wore a sword. Well, I'm not saying that we need to wear a sword or have a gun. You can't do that here anyways. Um, but we ought to be courteous under the same principle because we always have in the means, the means even in our hearts, the means available to do one another harm. And therefore, we shouldn't provoke, and we shouldn't be an undue temptation. And we should therefore seek as much as possible to be courteous one to another. Well, there are many others, and as usual, I encourage you to take a look at the larger catechism on this, but let us move then on to uh, the second half of the application, which is the sins forbidden. This is larger catechism 136, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? All taking away the life of ourselves begins that way, with suicide, which is self-murder. And you have to, we understand, and we, I, I hope all the more, as suicide sadly becomes more prevalent in our increasingly pagan society, that we don't have the right to do that. We don't have the right to take away our own lives. Only God has that right. Or of others, of course, murder. Except in case of public justice. Capital punishment, therefore, is lawful. It is not uh, in, in, in terms of God's moral law. We don't have it in the UK, but uh, it is in God's law lawful. Whoever sheds man's blood, by, his blood shall, uh, by, his, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Lawful war. Again, one of the questions I get asked all the time. Of people who are aware of my military connection, but just law is certainly law. just war is certainly lawful. Jeremiah forty eight, ten, cursed is he who does the work of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed is he who keeps back his sword from blood. Or Deuteronomy twenty, verse three. He said to him, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart be faint. Do not be afraid, and do not tremble or be terrified because of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight. For you, against your enemies, to save you. Now, exactly what constitutes a just law, or a just war, is the subject, of course, for another day. The point is just to say that there is such a thing. The neglecting or withdrawing the necessary and the lawful necessary means of the preservation of life—that's very important. That is part of medical ethics. So, particularly you physicians among us, you have to consider. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of the preservation of life, because that is part of this commandment. Sinful anger is a sin. Hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, and even distracting cares. How about that? Matthew six thirty one. Therefore, do not worry, saying, "What shall we eat?" or "What shall we drink?" or "What shall we wear?" For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about his own things. Sufficient to the day is his own trouble. And just like we said, so most of these things are the opposite side of the coin of the first half. So immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreation is likewise a violation of these commandments. Provoking words... Oppression, quarreling, that's by the way, young people, children, that's why we tell you, don't use provoking words. And some of you are pretty good at using provoking words, but we need to get utterly out of that habit. Because these things are a violation of the Sixth Commandment. Quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any Um, To these things I'm going to add one more because I hope by this point you say, you know what, I walked into this sermon thinking this was one commandment I was safe on and now I've left realizing I'm perhaps of all things most guilty of this one. And my third and final application is that you remember that Christ came to save murderers like us. That's why Christ came. You know, it's an interesting moment for me in Acts 28 when the Maltese, the people of Malta, Reason that uh, the Apostle Paul is come, and he, he, they know he's a prisoner, and many of them are prisoners, and uh, a viper comes and bites him. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said one to another, "No doubt this man is a murderer whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live." You know what? Paul was a murderer. He was. A murderer. He had persecuted God's church to the death. Acts 9-1, then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. They were right. Do you know what? He didn't die. It's a picture then, isn't it? He should have, but he didn't. Christ died. Christ took that poison for him. The justice of God. And what he says in First 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And friend, if you have come under conviction of this commandment, may you also cling to Christ in faith because he came to save murderers just like you and I. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize our own ignorance of your law. We recognize, Lord, that in our sin, we would wish to make your law as narrow as possible to apply only to the worst cases and particularly the things that we have not done. O Lord, how we pray that you'd open our eyes to the ugly truth of all of our own sin, past and present, and that, Lord, in these things, not to wallow in them, but rather, Lord, to repent of them, Rather to run to, to Christ to offer his salvation, who came to save even the chief of sinners, a murderer like Paul. And Heavenly Father, we are thankful that there will be many, many, many on that day who stand justified and cleared of, of all offenses who have done such terrible things against the Sixth Commandment and hated their brothers and sisters in their heart. Christ has died and is risen. We pray, Lord, that we would cling to him, and moreover, Lord, that we would conform to him in the perfection of the way that he kept the law of God, loving people and seeking their good. We pray your your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.